Hi, I'm Greg Lefebvre, and this is The Compulsive Storyteller, a series of short personal stories where we explore the idea that truth is stranger than fiction. This week's episode, entitled Comedy and Tragedy in Lower Manhattan, is about what happens when I was commissioned to do a large public artwork in New York City and discovered the intriguing and tragic history of Foley Square, a long-overlooked section of Lower Manhattan. My descent into some serious problems with a crooked big city contractor and with the federal anti-terror police has some very dark moments. But both entanglements also offer up some surreal comedy as well. If you're interested in learning more about my various public art projects around the country, check out my website, andrewslefebvre.com. That's A-N-D-R-E-W-S-L-E-F-E-V-R-E.com. Thanks. Comedy and Tragedy in Lower Manhattan Introduction In my career as a public artist, I've had to deal with hundreds of different building contractors over the years, and mostly things didn't go well. About 95% of the contractors I dealt with did not understand the artistic process, did not want to work with an artist, and did not have a clue what the artwork was about. In fact, many contractors take a perverse pleasure in making life difficult for the artist, particularly when it comes to money. This story is about one such relationship. However, the contractor involved, Connie Clanaridis, is an amalgam of several different individuals whom I've worked with. Everything that's described in this story did happen, but not with the same contractor. After the New York City Parks Department awarded me a commission to produce five large bronze history medallions to be set in the paving of Foley Square in Lower Manhattan, I received a call from one Connie Clonaridis. Lefevre, he asked. Am I pronouncing it right? It's actually pronounced Lefevre, I replied. Okay, Connie Clonaridis here. Hi, Connie Clonaridis. Am I pronouncing it correctly? To which he snorted and said, yeah, but I told it to you. So listen, I want you to come out to Glen Cove to sign of the contract. But why can't you just FedEx it to me? I mean, it's not like a job interview or anything like that, because Parks Department has already assigned me as a designated subcontractor. No, my friend, he said. I know that, but I want you to come here, here to sign of the contract. So I'll have my guy pick you up at the Glen Cove Railroad Station. How's it tomorrow at 11? Let me look up the train schedule just to show you what a good guy I am. At this point, I realized that starting a year-long business relationship with a refusal to visit the contractor's office was probably not the best move, so I agreed. The next day, his guy picked me up in a black Jeep Ranchero right on time. We drove to a shopping center, and in the back corner of the expansive parking lot stood a small, one-story cinder block building that could best be described as a bunker. It was totally unremarkable, except that outside was parked a shiny new Rolls-Royce and a Cadillac Escalade. Once inside the bunker door, Connie Clanaridis emerged from a back office and introduced himself. He was much younger than he sounded on the phone, good-looking with thick black hair, a tanned, weather-beaten face, 
well-dressed in a slick continental way, sporting a couple of gold chains. Kind of a guy you might see lounging on the stern of a big yacht in Athens Harbor. I couldn't help but notice that all of the half-dozen women working in the office were dressed like they were working in a strip club, showing a lot of cleavage, wearing tight scoop-neck tops, very short skirts, and extra-tall high heels. The boss asked if I wanted coffee or a drink, and I chose coffee. Gladys, get this man a coffee. As she went to get my coffee, I said to Connie, What the hell's going on here? Ah, my friend, you like the girls, hey? I'm speechless, I said. When she returned, he said, Gladys, Greg here wants a blowjob. What, I stammered. Are you crazy? I didn't say that. Now I was embarrassed as well as speechless. Gladys just laughed and exited the office. Man, are you nuts? You're going to get yourself a huge sexual harassment lawsuit talking like that. Nah, he said. They all love me. No one's going to sue me. Somehow I doubted that they all loved him. Gladys would become my liaison with the company and handled all my contacts and invoices. Once I got to know her better, I asked how she felt about the sort of behavior that I'd witnessed that first day. And she said with resignation, What am I going to do? I'm a single mom with two kids to feed. You could just sue him for sexual harassment, I suggested. I'll back you up. Greg, dear, wise up. If you did that, you would simply disappear. Hmm, that never occurred to me. The Parks Department Commission was to create five large-scale bronze medallions, each one of which would chronicle a different historic period of the square. They would be set in the new decorative granite paving of the Foley Square renovation project. In collaborating on my research, I discovered that Foley Square had as colorful a history as any place in New York City. Originally, there were two Native American footpaths that crossed there, along which, before the 1600s, both Lenapes and Munsees traveled. Their spirit animals, the turtle, the turkey, and the wolf, were each represented in relief on the medallion that referenced Manhattan before the arrival of the Dutch. For the tribes of the Delaware Nation, Manhattan was called the place where the sun is born, a designation that I think a lot of present-day New Yorkers would completely agree with. Once New Amsterdam was settled, there were farms there with fields that stretched north from the protective wall of the settlement, which eventually became Wall Street. Early on, the first gallows was built there, where the participants of one of the first slave rebellions were hung. Nearby were the slave auction houses and the African-American burial ground. During the American Revolution, it was home to the Bridewell City Prison, where the British held some of their Revolutionary War prisoners. The first city hall came in 1812 and is the oldest city hall in America. The area's first courthouse was completed in the late 1800s, while the Five Points neighborhood, with its many gangs, thrived nearby. The name Foley Square came from a Tammany Hall leader named Thomas Big Tom Foley, who operated a number of saloons and was your typical all-around crooked politician, guilty of election fraud, gang war mongering, and making payoffs and kickbacks of all sorts. 
Today, Foley Square is home to the greatest concentration of courthouses anywhere on the planet. A dozen different courts are housed here in eight different courthouse buildings surrounding the square. The installation of the first seven-foot medallion, which referenced the Native American history of the square, went smoothly enough. The second installation, however, was a different story. As we were planning the operation, the Oklahoma City bombing took place. The bomber, Timothy McVeigh, used a yellow rider truck to deliver his fertilizer bomb to the front plaza of the federal building where he detonated his vehicle, killing 168 people. I had already reserved a yellow rider truck to use to deliver my bronze medallion sections to the plaza of another federal building. So I began the arduous task of securing all the permissions that I would need to drive my truck onto the courthouse plaza. The morning of the installation, I called ahead and was assured by building security that there wouldn't be any problems. I presented my paperwork at the guard station of the municipal building next door, then circled around the building and I slowly drove up and over the curb and pulled onto the plaza. Almost immediately all hell broke loose when the truck was surrounded by a number of federal agents screaming, Get out of the truck! Hands in the air! Do not reach for your pockets! It was as if they materialized out of thin air. We kept our hands in the air and knelt down as we were told, but then there was some confusion and someone else ordered us to stand up and put our outstretched arms and hands up against the truck. By then, someone else had brought a bomb-sniffing German shepherd who was pulling hard against his leash. Where are your keys? yelled the first agent. I responded, in my right front pocket. Then he said, don't reach for your pocket. Keep your hands on the truck. Then he asked, is there anything sharp or dangerous in your pocket? I said, no, just my keys and some Kleenex. With that, he tentatively reached in my pocket, took my keys, and unlocked the back roll-up door of the truck. The truck's rear door ledge was so high off the ground that the shepherd couldn't jump up, so one of the agents awkwardly lifted up the dog and then had trouble climbing up himself. They were inside for a while, then they came out, and the dog circled the truck, sniffing. We just stood there, and I was getting tired of keeping my arms up. I asked, Can we shut up and don't talk, barked one of the men. The agent who was apparently in charge walked away on the plaza, talking on his cell. After a while... A couple of suits joined the agents, and then a black SUV pulled up onto the plaza, and we were ordered to get in. Two agents joined us sitting in front, and the doors were locked. The searching continued outside, and someone with a mirror on a pole checked underneath the truck, and then wipes from the door handles and knobs were fed into a portable explosive residue analysis machine. On and on it went, and we just sat silently in the back. Next, they had a little huddle, after someone retrieved my folder of papers from the front seat. They poured over the paperwork, then someone came over to the SUV to ask for identification, which we provided. Finally, two hours after we arrived, we were told we could continue with the installation. No apology, no explanation, no nothing. And then they just walked away. Then my assistant ventured, That was fun. Yeah, right, I responded. And then said to them, after they disappeared, Well, fuck you too. Luckily, the rest of the installation was uneventful. The third medallion installation on the Foley Square site of the International Courthouse Building 
was even more bizarre. Osama bin Laden, in a globally publicized fatwa, had ordered the faithful to make war on Americans wherever they found them. So the city of New York was put on high alert a couple days before my installation. I hadn't bothered doing all the prep work of getting permissions since it had proved so pointless the first time. And so again, with two assistants this time, I slowly drove a different yellow rider truck up and over the curb onto the International Courthouse Plaza. We all looked around, and there were no police in sight. We got out warily and looked in all directions. Again, no armed agents appeared. Then we tentatively unloaded all of our gear. Still no problem, in spite of the fact that we were all continuously looking around suspiciously within view of a dozen different CCTV cameras. We spent the whole day working there, with no permissions and nobody paying us any mind or asking us any questions. So much for the great protections offered by our nation's security services. The medallion that we installed that day was on the side of Foley Square nearest to the former location of the African-American burial ground. It was used throughout the 1700s and long ago covered over by various civic building projects. The medallion was a collage of relief images from the African-American history of the square. After setting this one, the remaining medallions were installed without incident. Meanwhile, Connie Clanaridis hadn't paid me a nickel since the first down payment, in spite of my numerous invoices and phone calls. He did call once and offered to take me out to a steak dinner at Scores, the premier strip club of the day, but I declined. Back then, fax machines used to spit out messages from a roll of paper, so I began sending Clanaridis longer and longer faxes that read in all caps, Please pay Greg Lefebvre what you owe him. I kept increasing the typeface size until it reached 250-point Helvetica bold, and my request ran to 10 feet long. Still no response. Even Gladys wasn't getting back to me, and I kicked myself for not holding up the last medallion installation until they'd paid in full. Then, after the longest Please Pay Greg Lefebvre fax ever, I got a call from Connie. Hey, Lefebvre, you're costing me a fortune in fucking fax paper, and it's going to cost you. But he didn't seem particularly perturbed. Then it became apparent why, when he asked, I need a favor. Great, I responded sarcastically. We need a rush job on a plaque with the company name, logo, and data of the project. We're going to put it on the side of the big fountain for the opening ceremony. I was quiet, thinking to myself, God, now I finally got him. So, my friend, you think you can do this for me? Sure, I can do that, but it will require payment in full for the whole job before I deliver the plaque. After a few more sarcastic and threatening back and forths, in the middle of which he called me a little pissant artist trying to hold up a $23 million job, he agreed to FedEx me a check and I ordered the plaque from my foundry in Pittsburgh. Of course, I forgot who I was dealing with. The plaque arrived three weeks later, but the FedEx check never did. A few days before the unveiling ceremony, when I refused to deliver unless I received a cashier's check for the total amount due, Connie agreed to personally deliver the check to my studio the next day. The following morning, the same guy who originally picked me up from the train station showed up at my studio with an envelope. When I opened it, the amount was 10% shy of the final amount due. 
I complained, and his response was, Retainage, it's standard practice. To which I replied, Payment in full or no plaque. He shook his head from side to side. Look, I've worked for Connie for years, he said, and if you do this, you'll never see the rest of your money. I can promise you that. You simply cannot muscle Connie. I thought for a minute, sighed, and handed him the plaque. Each of the five medallions that we set was at the center of a starburst shape rendered in red granite and bluestone, and each was at one end of a long red granite walkway. All five walkways converged on a central freestanding sculpture and fountain created by African-American artist Lorenzo Pace. Because he'd been the artist of his family, he'd been entrusted at a very young age with the lock that had been used to chain his great-great-grandfather, who was a slave. I had faithfully rendered the primitively fashioned lock in the detailing of one of the medallions. Lorenzo had been commissioned to create the centerpiece for the entire project. His 50-foot-tall, 300-ton, black granite work was entitled The Triumph of the Human Spirit, which he represented with an abstract image of an African antelope with its calf sitting atop a boat shape. For Lorenzo, the black granite boat had a triple meaning, representing the slaves in the Middle Passage, the Native Americans who'd paddled in their canoes on the nearby river, and all the other immigrant peoples who had traveled by boat to get to New York and America. The unveiling ceremony was a big deal. The mayor, the parks commissioner, and a raft of other assorted dignitaries attended. Lorenzo Pace did not attend, however, because the unveiling was held three days before Columbus Day. Given Columbus's savage record regarding the slave trade, Lorenzo boycotted the event. At the time, I thought that three days was a sufficiently long period of separation between the two events. If I had it to do over again, I probably would have joined him in the boycott. I was invited to stand on the stage with everyone else, and I was happy to see that Clanarides wasn't invited to join the group. I knew some of the people standing with me, and they seemed amused by my presence for some reason. After the ceremony, I learned what was so amusing. The event planners had received some anonymous threats, possibly because of the event's closeness to Columbus Day. It turned out that everyone on the dais was wearing a bulletproof vest underneath their suit jacket, just in case. Except for little old me. Very funny. The medallion that I was most proud of was the one by the International Courthouse, which detailed the African-American history of the square. It included in relief scenes of early black farmers, a slave auction with chained slaves being sold on the block in front of a crowd of Dutch bidders, the facade of the African-American Free School, and the most heart-wrenching image of all, a pinewood slave burial coffin containing the skeletons of a mother cradling her child. Set in the rim of the medallion, were a series of tribal Adinkra symbols from Ghana. Sections of Maya Angelou's poem, Still I Rise, were incised into a bronze ribbon that ran between the different scenes in relief. It read, You may write me down in history with your bitter, twisted lies. 
You may trod me in the very dirt, but still like dust I rise. Just like moons and like suns, with the certainty of tides, just like hopes springing high, still I rise. Do you want to see me broken, bowed head and lowered eyes, shoulders falling down like teardrops, weakened by my soulful cries, leaving behind nights of terror and fear, I rise. Into a daybreak that's wondrously clear, I rise, bringing the gifts that my ancestors gave. I am the dream and the hope of the slave. I rise, I rise, I rise. Years after the unveiling, I was called by a Parks Department conservator who was trying to figure out why this medallion had turned green while all the other four still had their original brown patina. I told him I really had no idea why. Two weeks later, he called me back and said, Mystery solved. The courthouse checked out some of the surveillance tapes of the plaza, and they discovered that a middle-aged white guy was pissing on the medallion at night every time he passed by. How sad, but not surprising, given what we now know in 2020, that over 170 years after the slaves were freed, and decades after all the blood, sweat, and tears that were shed in the civil rights movement, hardcore racism is still alive and well in Manhattan. Impulsive Storyteller is produced by Peter Kakoma and me, Greg Lefebvre. If you've enjoyed our podcast, please subscribe to The Compulsive Storyteller on Spotify or wherever you listen to podcasts. And it would be great if you could leave a review. Follow the show on Instagram at The Compulsive Storyteller and check out our website at thecompulsivestoryteller.com. Thanks for listening. And if you didn't like this one, the next one will be another story. <laughs>